How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law, Thomas McCoy, and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Yay! Thank you, Tom. Doing that with the four touchdowns in a single game cadence. Yeah, that was really good. And you scored lots of points on that. It was a real kick. That was the extra point. Oh. I just thought I'd make that, make that point. So, how's the week been, Tom? Personally, not terrible. Okay, what about impersonally? <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, I'm pretty annoyed, to say the least. About what? Yeah. A few things. So, today, people, it, it might have slid under the radar, but the Supreme Court overruled uh, a court case that effectively guts the EPA, gives them no power to enforce the Clean Air Act, which yep. was signed by President Richard Nixon. Wow. Yeah. Not exactly the progressive hippie type, but understood the importance of having a safe planet. Yeah. Uh, and prior to that, overturning Roe versus Wade, yeah. which on its face returns the rights to the states so that the people can decide right. people's reproductive rights. Here's the thing. Uh, state legislators aren't intrinsically democratic. Yeah. There were laws in place in many states that sprang into law immediately, banning abortions without condition. It doesn't yeah. matter if you have an ectopic pregnancy, which will kill you. Yeah. We, we, I hope that we can uh, get folks from Planned Parenthood and others on the show in a couple of weeks from now. We've got a, a guest scheduled for... No, actually, we're trying to get them for next week, right? Yeah, I, and I have one. I, um... Good, good. Yeah, we, we have to talk about it. I mean, it's, it's so silly. So the state gets a right to decide, but maybe not the woman. Hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, we're talking about like individual right, and I'm all about that. You know, it, right. let, 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 it, let the minority have their, you know, their own freedoms yeah. to choose. So why don't we take that a step further? You know, we got the state deciding, well, how about let, you know, the, the municipalities decide that the, the counties, sure. the, maybe yeah. the towns, how about, let's, let's go smaller. Let's go, good. How about the, the person, like each person with their own doctor, Oh, well, that's a good idea. Yeah. Why not? Why yeah. not? You know, uh, Carol, my wife said uh, in, in the constitution, did they give you the right to get like a coronary bypass? Okay. So here's the thing. So people, I, I always assume that maybe like, Hey, maybe the framers were uh, against the Bush. No, no. They thought it was so trivial that it didn't even make it into the constitution. I know. I know. I know. You know, I, 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 I know it's a reality. I kind of wish it was not, and it was a hallucination and a delusion. And with that in mind, could you introduce our guest for tonight, please? Dr. Joe, we have a fantastic guest tonight. She is an associate psychiatrist at the Massachusetts General Hospital and an assistant professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. She's the director of the first episode in early psychosis program, the director of clinical services for the psychosis clinical and research program, and the Associate Director of the Acute Psychiatry Service at Massachusetts General Hospital. Welcome to the Dr. Joe Show, Dr. Abby Donovan. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for that lovely introduction, and, and thank you for inviting me here tonight. 
We are so Pleasure. delighted to have you here, Dr. Abby Donovan. You want us to call you Abby, is that right? Yes, Abby, please. So I, I want people to know that we have permission to call yes. Dr. Donovan yes. Abby. Okay. Yes. Um, so let's let's get right into this. First episode, schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. What What is that? So it is... Um, it is the time in a person's life when they first start developing symptoms of what will eventually become schizophrenia. Um, the typical course of illness is uh, several months or even a year or two of symptoms that we call the prodrome. Um, these are pretty vague, non-specific symptoms, things like maybe feeling not quite like yourself some changes in sleep, maybe feeling a little bit more anxious, um, withdrawing from friends a little bit, some trouble with concentration and memory. And then over time, people start to develop uh, subtle symptoms of psychosis, which really means having a break from reality. So they start to hear things that aren't real or see things that aren't really there, or believe things are happening when they really aren't. And those experiences and beliefs grow stronger over time and then take over much of the person's everyday life. And that, that constellation of symptoms is what we, um, what we call schizophrenia. It um, it comes actually at a, at a very interesting point in development. I'm a child psychiatrist, so I think a lot about sort of the development of the child into adolescence and adulthood, and it really, schizophrenia emerges at this time, which is critical. It's when adolescents are gradually moving into young adulthood, and they're supposed to be Um, becoming individuals and moving away from their families and going to college and getting jobs and individuating. And this is exactly when this illness strikes and it sort of turns that developmental period just on its head completely. Um, So instead of becoming independent, these young adults or older adolescents are becoming dependent again. Um curious about that what do you think the evolutionary premium is on that i mean why then as opposed to i mean i think some kids get it much much earlier but it's very rare yep and then some people can get it much much later but that's very rare yes why do you think then yeah it's a it's a great question um one of the hypotheses is that this is the time in um, in development when there is, for everyone, sort of normal development, there is pruning of, um, of, of synapses, the connections between neurons. Um, some of them are becoming strengthened and others sort of die away. There's this pruning of, of the uh, neuronal relationships. And some people think that maybe what happens is schizophrenia is that pruning goes awry mm-hmm. and too much gets pruned or the wrong, wrong pruning takes place in the wrong parts of the brain. Um, and so that may be why it occurs at this particular period in development. I want people to understand that the pruning is like 
is not the it's not the fruit right prune where it's it but it's, it's like cutting branches and things to make a plant grow Exactly, exactly. Like if you have, you know, your bush in your backyard and you want to, you need to, right, to have a healthy bush, you have to cut away some of those branches to let it uh, flourish and flower. Um, that's, and that's normal. Um, but if you prune off too much or if you prune in the wrong place, um, that's how you can get illness. Interesting. What an interesting hypothesis. Um, what's, What's the youngest that we can see this? So as you mentioned, there are young kids who can develop schizophrenia. Um, and, you know, I'm just trying to think back over my clinical practice. I've, I've certainly seen a couple of kids that are like nine, 10 years old uh, with schizophrenia. It is incredibly rare. So these are less than 1% of all people who have schizophrenia will develop it before age 13. Very, very rare. Now, would this make it more severe if it's being pruned at a earlier? Uh, yeah, it, it does make it more severe. So um, the younger you develop schizophrenia, in general, the worse outcome that you have over time. Hmm. Interesting. Um, and does it look the same at eight or nine years old? Um, it, it does. It, it can be challenging to diagnose because um, kids, uh, kids, especially younger kids, have all sorts of magical thinking and wild imaginations that you don't see in adolescents and, and young adults. So, you know, for a younger kid, it might be totally normal to have an imaginary friend that you talk to or to make up stories about things that happen during your day and to really believe those things. So it uh, it can be challenging to sort out, well, are you talking to an imaginary friend or are you talking to the voices that you're hearing that no one else is hearing? Does it get frustrating to see pop culture portrayals of things like schizophrenia? Because one thing you might have heard brought up is uh, this Marvel series Moon Knight, which was kind of it was a lower profile one. But I thought it was it was a fun, uh, you know, if you like Oscar Isaac, just give it a watch. But it. It touches into schizophrenia and I think multiple personality disorder, which I don't know how related it is. Yeah, yes. So it can it it can get a little frustrating. Um, you know, multiple personality disorder and schizophrenia are totally different. Um, people with schizophrenia don't have a a split personality. They're not two or three or four different people. They are one person who is suffering with an illness that has a number of really impairing symptoms. Um, I think one of the most common portrayals of, of schizophrenia in popular culture, which which probably bothers me the most, is, is that of um, being someone who's really violent or aggressive. Mm. And, and the reality is that people with schizophrenia are actually much more likely to be a victim of violence than they are to perpetrate violence. 
So picturing them in in movies or TV shows as you know violent serial killers is just is just wrong. These yeah, are... we're we are programmed to just go uh oh when someone says their voices in my head. Right. Right. Yeah. So most most people with schizophrenia are not violent. They're they're suffering. They're victims. Um, they deserve our our compassion rather than our fear. Yeah. Very very true. And um, how do we get that message out to people? I mean, that's what we're hoping to do here tonight. But mm-hmm. how do we educate people about that, Abby? You know, I I think it is doing things exactly like this. It is talking about it whenever and wherever we can. I think also um, doing what we can to combat the stigma of mental illness. You know, people talk about having high blood pressure or diabetes all, all the time, and it's so normalized. But it's not as normal for someone to say, oh, I'm diagnosed with schizophrenia or I have depression or I have anxiety. These are these are like well-kept secrets. Um, and so you don't we we don't have a, a personal relationship or a face that we can put on these illnesses to say, you know what, I actually know a number of different people with schizophrenia and they're not violent. Um, you know, these keeping these secrets and and the ongoing stigma of of mental illness is, uh, is enormously problematic. Yeah. And this, this really is part of what the I am is also trying to address Mm -hmm. that that there is no illness or disease. We're doing the best Mm -hmm. we can. If it's schizophrenia, then it's schizophrenia, but we can make some changes in the domains. There's, There's something called theory of mind, right? But we can't see someone's mind, but we have to guess and think what they think or feel, especially about us. So secrets aren't secrets because of what we've done. Secrets are secrets because we worry, how will someone judge me if they know my secret? Mm-hmm. And just imagine this, folks. There you are already struggling and challenged and feeling more and more isolated. And you can't tell anyone about it because you're going to be even more isolated. This is just not right. We are, we are better than that as a species. We are. Now, now schizophrenia is, it must have been around evolutionarily for a long time. I mean, right? The, what, what percentage in general, what's the, the prevalence of schizophrenia? Yeah, so we think about it's 1% of the population is affected. <laughs> so, so let's just think about that. That means... There's some genetic component to it. There's biological component. Is there also an environmental component to schizophrenia? There is. There is. It's it's both genetic and environmental. Um, we know of a number of environmental risk factors that increase the risk of developing schizophrenia. So things like um, infection during gestation. So um, babies that were exposed to viruses like influenza when they were gestating or starvation in the prenatal period. So babies that were gestating during the Dutch hunger winter and the Chinese famine, Hmm. they have double the risk of developing schizophrenia later in life. Even things like bullying, 
increase your risk of developing schizophrenia. Other traumas, sexual trauma, uh, immigration is another risk factor. So do you think we're going to be tracking this during COVID, post-COVID? Yeah, I mean, I think it's an absolutely fascinating question. Um, we absolutely should be, you know, the, for for all of the babies um, that were exposed to, to coronavirus during gestation, you know, 15 to 25 years from now, we have to wonder what, what rates of schizophrenia are going to be like. So, Abby, how, how did you become interested in this? Um, you know, I, I fell into it. I, I knew, uh, from medical school that I was very interested in child psychiatry. I knew I was going to be a child psychiatrist. And when I was doing my training, you have to rotate through a number of different areas to be exposed to all different forms of treatment and, and, and different illnesses, and when I was working in the Freedom Trail Clinic with people who had chronic schizophrenia, I just, I just fell in love with the community and with the treatment and with thinking about this, this illness. It, for me, it combines everything I love about psychiatry because we get to think about the biology what's happening on a cellular level in the brain, what's happening with dopamine. But we also get to think about development, which is what I love as a child psychiatrist. And we get to think about family systems. What happens to the family when one individual develops schizophrenia? And we get to think about psychodynamics, why does someone have the delusion that they have? Yeah, what is it about their psychology that, that created that delusion in their mind? So it's, it's like all of the richness of psychiatry is coming together in this one area. Yeah. Um, so it, it felt, felt like the perfect fit for me. That's so interesting. So is there a psychodynamic component to the, the hallucination or the delusion the person has? I mean, I, I think that, that, that at times there is. Wow. That's so interesting. I've never considered that. That's fascinating. Hmm. So can we, can we use psychotherapy at all as an intervention? So it's a great question. And there are people who believe that you can. Um, I'm not actually one of them, <laughs> <laughs> but there are people who believe that you can. I, with schizophrenia, I fall more into the CBT camp. I mm. think CBT is... Can you just say CBT? Some of my viewers might not know what that acronym means. Absolutely. So CBT is Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. It's different than psychotherapy where we might talk about sort of our thoughts and our feelings and our upbringings and our relationships with people. CBT is more about thinking in a concrete way um, about thoughts, feelings, and behaviors and changing one of those to impact the other two. 
And with, um, with schizophrenia, we do CBT for psychosis. So mm-hmm. we, we do a lot of um, testing, are the voices real or not? Testing, am I actually being followed by someone or not? Um, uh, using a variety of, of strategies. And it's, it's highly effective um, for both positive mm-hmm. symptoms, hearing voices, feeling paranoid, and negative symptoms, um, trouble with a motivation and um, uh, 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 you know, impaired energy and cognition and those sorts of things. Can, can you just clarify for our listeners, positive versus negative? Because, you know, positive symptoms in this case doesn't mean this is a really good thing. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So it is positive in the sense that it is an addition Mm. to everyday experience. Mm. So you're hearing extra, you're hearing more than what is there. You're seeing more than what is there. So that's, it's positive because it's an addition. Mm. Negative symptoms are a subtraction you have less motivation than before. You get less pleasure from activities than before. You talk less or use fewer words and have fewer facial expressions. So it's a subtraction. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's really important for, for our viewers to hear, especially in this day of COVID, where words are reversed, where positive is negative, Mm-hmm. And negative is positive. I had a positive test. Well, that's negative. <laughs> yeah, it's like, okay, it's nuts, crazy. So um, with with these populations, are you, I mean, do you see more of one than the other? Is it people with more positive than negative? It, um, it's very dependent on the individual. Some people will have a, a positive symptom, predominant form of the illness. Some people will have very, very few positive symptoms and have more negative symptom, predominant illness. Um, varies from person to person. But, but, but in general, statistically, is schizophrenia, are more people going to present with positive hallucinations or more people with that sort of negative, almost catatonic component? Yeah. Statistically, most people with schizophrenia have both. Really? Huh. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Tom, you, you, you want to say what we were talking about offline a little bit and let's bring it in. Yeah. So Dr. Joe, I think you've done this before. You really did a perfect elevator pitch of drug story theater to, to Abby, uh, prompted by a conversation about how, Apparently, we can really complicate things with schizophrenia. Yeah. Abby, let's hear about this. Absolutely. So um, people ask me sometimes, you know, schizophrenia runs in my family. How can I prevent it? Or how can I make sure that my child doesn't get schizophrenia? And, and we are researching a number of different interventions at this moment. We don't have a surefire way to prevent schizophrenia, but we can do things to decrease the risk for developing schizophrenia. And the number one thing is to avoid marijuana. 
no marijuana in any form, no pot, no edibles, no vaping, no marijuana. We know that adolescents who are heavy users of marijuana are increasing their risk for developing schizophrenia on the order of like two or three times greater just by using marijuana. Um, it is it is awful for the developing brain. It is a toxic so, toxin. So if there's anything that kids out there can be doing or families out there can be doing, it is to avoid marijuana. So how do we, how do we combat the mythology then that, you know, the, the marijuana companies have insidiously, insidiously, you know, said it's okay. I mean, we've started with medicalized weed, then decriminalized, and now it's legalized. How do we get the message across? Because people don't believe it. Nah, it's just it's just weed. Yeah, I mean, I in my family, we make these everyday regular conversations. This is like dinner table conversation starting from incredibly young ages about how um advertising companies lie to us and um, the commercials on the TV lie to us and we can only trust the facts. Um, and, and so we know from science that marijuana is dangerous. Um, we know that other drugs are dangerous and, and we'll use other examples, right? We know how gross smoking is. We know how smoking kills you. Well, 30 years ago, everyone smoked. No one thought it was bad. This is just the same thing. Marijuana is gross. Marijuana is bad for your body. Um, so we we make these things ongoing conversations. I do it in my family, and I think everyone should be doing it in their family. Yeah. It's such a challenge um, with uh, with our kids these days because you know, it's illegal here in Massachusetts. Yeah. Um, and the way I say it is, you know, guns are legal. It doesn't make yeah. them safe. Cars yeah. are legal. doesn't make it safe. Uh, prescription pain medicine is legal. It doesn't make it safe. So I don't know why people just think weed, you know, ah, it's just weed. No, I, I don't have a problem, I suppose, if you're over 21. But even then, what you're saying is that it still puts people at risk. Absolutely. Your brain is still developing. 21, your brain is still developing. Do we have any any insight into why weed may be contributing like this? We don't have really conclusive evidence. I mean, I think in part because we don't have a fabulous understanding right now of how or why schizophrenia actually develops. Hmm. We have a number of hypotheses, but we don't have an enormously clear understanding of what is happening on a on a cellular level yeah. in the brain. So I'm just I'm just curious, and I'm just sort of thinking off the top of my head here, but I know that when we use medications to address schizophrenia, mm -hmm. is it true that we're we're doing mostly dopamine blockade? Yeah, that's the major target of our medications is uh, dopamine blockade of of various different dopamine receptors. So, so so maybe we can like let's let's sort of take that down so people can understand it. 
what does that really mean? What what is a receptor? What is dopamine? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm listening, Abby. So yeah. are our audience. <laughs> so, so in our brain, there are cells that need to be able to talk to each other. Um, there are a number of different types of cells. Some of the most important ones are, are the neurons, and they're transmitting signals um, from, from one neuron to another. The way that they transmit those signals is by releasing chemicals into the space in between them. There's lots of different chemicals they can release, um, and each one has a different meaning in this conversation between the two cells. So they can release serotonin, and that means one thing. They can release norepinephrine, that means something else. And they can release dopamine. And that sends a particular signal through cells to different parts of the brain. Um, One of the things that happens in schizophrenia is that dopamine conversation goes awry. We don't know exactly why or how, but it does. And so we give medications to block the impact of dopamine on the cells that are that it, that it would be activating. So we're, I don't know, sort of, I guess, like putting sort of earplugs into that cell that would have been receiving that dopamine message. That's what these medications are doing. Yeah. And so... If, and this is just theoretical, but we know that all drugs and alcohol force the brain to make more dopamine. Mm -hmm. Could that then be a contributing factor? Because when you smoke weed, you are increasing dopamine secretion in your brain. Yeah, it's an interesting idea. The challenge is that not all drugs and alcohol increase the risk of schizophrenia mm. to the same degree that cannabis does. Could it be the anxiety? I know a lot of people will have terrible anxiety with weed, you know, so almost a chronic anxiety, if you will. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Especially with like edibles. Like Yeah. And, and anxiety is on the spectrum, I suppose, of paranoia. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, you can think of paranoia as a uh, as a high anxiety state, right? Where you're perceiving threat all around you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the mechanism is is probably pretty complex um, and not yet well elucidated, but the effect is clear. We know that that cannabis is increasing the risk of schizophrenia. So I I, I just wonder how our audience is going to, you know, be able to take this information. Remember the I am approach, right? We have a biological domain. We are influencing that biological domain by taking cannabis in. Mm -hmm. And that thing can have an effect on so many other things. Mm -hmm. And yet we, we are stuck with it, you know? You know, it, it, the the tobacco analogy is really important because there was, I think it was starting in 2012, more kids were smoking weed in the last 30 days than tobacco mm. because they knew tobacco can hurt you. Yeah, yeah. So if, if you know that tobacco is going to hurt you, you're not going to do it. So kids, sorry, but 
you know, we're not, we're not trying to get you to like say, oh, you know, we don't want you to have fun. There are many other ways to have fun. Exactly. And smoking weed right now. But we got pot shops everywhere. Mm-hmm. Everywhere. So have you found um, certain medications seem to be working better these days? Because my understanding is that there, you know, there's an old, maybe, can you talk about maybe about that between that first generation antipsychotic and the more second generation ones? Yeah, absolutely. So our older medications are the first generation antipsychotics. Our newer medications are the second generation antipsychotics. Um, the, the biggest difference actually between the two groups of medications is in the side effect profile. So our first generation antipsychotics um, tend to have more um, muscular side effects uh, as well as something called um, extrapyramidal symptoms or EPS. So these are medicines that can cause um, an uncomfortable, restless feeling in people. They can cause people to develop um, Parkinsonian-like symptoms, which is not Parkinson's disease, but it can have some of the same symptoms as Parkinson's, where you have a hard time walking, a shuffling gait, um, a, a, a mask or expressionless face, um, trouble uh, having your voice at full volume. And those muscle side effects I mentioned, if if they um, become severe, they can cause something called tardive dyskinesia, which can be a permanent muscle twitch. And it often actually affects facial muscles, which can be pretty debilitating for people. Now, our second generation antipsychotics have a whole host of different side effects. They cause things like weight gain, which then can trigger high cholesterol and diabetes and the health problems that, that go along there. Um, so side effect profiles are very different. Efficacy, interestingly enough, between the two groups is basically the same. Hmm. They are, they're roughly as effective as each other. It's just those side effect profiles, which are very different. So with the first generation, again, I, Cordy, I don't want to get so technical about this, but is there a difference in the dopamine blockade? Is that what we're trying to do? with antipsychotics is dopamine blockade? Yes, yes, we are. We're trying to, we're trying to, um, to block dopamine. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Now I will say the vast majority of the antipsychotics first generation and second generation have equal efficacy to each other. There is one standout It is technically a second-generation antipsychotic, although it's a little bit different than all of those, and it's clozapine. So clozapine is the single most effective antipsychotic that we have. Interesting. These are the sort of things that is personal, real stories that people need to hear, because it says a lot about what is really happening also with schizophrenia. And Abby, I know that's something that is a really important topic to talk about. Let's talk about that part. Absolutely. Um, I, I think that it, it is 
critical to understand that this illness is is a spectrum and that there are people who have a severe form of the illness um, who who suffer and require intensive treatment. And there are people who with treatment can get their lives back in a way that is meaningful for them. Um, They can go on to function and graduate from college and have jobs and get married and have kids. I, I, I worry sometimes when I talk about people and I say, you know, I believe that you have schizophrenia or I believe that your child has schizophrenia, that it feels like a death sentence, that there is never going to be anything that they can accomplish in their life. And that's not, that's not the case with treatment, with early intervention, um, people can, can have functioning and, and worthwhile lives. And that's, that is something we need to hold on to that that there can be hope within this illness but you have to identify it early yeah that's a that's critical it's critical that's why we focus in on that first episode it's the whole point of my work it is identifying schizophrenia as early as possible and intervening with uh, coordinated complex care, not just the medication, but also the individual therapy and the family therapy. How do people find Abby Donovan? <laughs> so... Um, you can find me probably on the internet, but I'll tell you, if you are in Massachusetts, there is a website called MapNet, M-A-P-N-E-T. On that website, there is a list of every first episode psychosis program in the state Mm. and how to get in touch with each and every one of them. So that if you're living in, you know, northern Massachusetts, you can find the three programs that are closest to you. Or if you're in western Massachusetts, you can find the program out there that's closest to you um, and get in touch with them. Folks, it's so important. You are not alone in this. Ken Duckworth is writing a book Mm -hmm. right now. You are not alone. You must recognize that we are here to help. There's no judgment here. There's nothing like that. There's, we can help, you know, and, and, and if, if you get seen right away, there's a suspicion, come in and get some treatment because then we can maybe make a huge effect that can be life-changing for you. It's scary. It's a scary, scary condition. There's no question, but it's manageable. You may not be able to cure it, but you know what? You may not be able to cure type 1 diabetes either, but we can manage a lifetime of it. Really, really important. So do you think, speaking of it as a spectrum, um, do we all sometimes have thought distortions? Just sure. As, you know, just a human being, you know, I think, did that person say something about me or... Right. I mean, isn't that just part of who we are also as human beings? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure all of us have had the experience of, did someone just call my name? Right. Right. 
oh, are they, are they looking at me weird? Did I say something wrong or do something wrong? Um, that's, that's the very mild end, right? Yes. And that's what I want people to hear. That's what we mean when we say it's spectrum. All these conditions are spectrum, you know, schizophrenia, bipolar, major depression, anxiety. Everybody gets a little nervous, but not everyone has a panic attack. Right. You know, everyone can get sad, but not everyone necessarily has major depression. Everyone can think somebody said something about me. That doesn't mean everyone will have schizophrenia, but it's part of who we are as human beings. I don't think that we can have these psychiatric conditions if we didn't have some basis for mm-hmm. it, which is part of our human condition. Yes, absolutely. So, so we're coming to the end of the show. The I am approach, as you remember, I believe we're all at a current maximum potential. We're doing the best we can, influenced by the four domains of your home domain, your social domain the biological domain and the I see, how I see myself, how I think other people see me. We've been talking a lot about that, that there may be interactions between your biological domain and your external domain, the way you see yourself. So because the domains interconnect, a small change can have a big effect. Abby, what small change can you recommend to our listeners when it comes to schizophrenia? I think that... um... I, I, you know, I think that there, there are actually two things that come to mind. I don't know. Is that cheating by giving two? No, fine, it's fine. The biggest one <laughs> is one that we've already mentioned. It's, it's actually avoiding cannabis um, and making it a part of our family discussions um, for, for our kids, no matter how young or old they are, that it's important to avoid cannabis. But I think the second thing is to, Focus on just being present with people that, um, you know, I find myself often seeing people at their worst, (laughs) whether it be in my office when I tell them that I believe they have schizophrenia or in the emergency department when I am hospitalizing them or talking with them after a suicide attempt and just the act of being present with someone in these critical moments is so powerful. Put aside what you're thinking, what I'm thinking, what I what I want to say next. Do I want to change your mind? Do I want to offer a different perspective? Take a few minutes each day to just be present with someone. Yeah. It's, it's, it's such important advice and small change. It can have such a big effect because, you know, we all want the same thing, which is just to feel valued by someone. And when you're, when you're present with someone, you're reminding them of their value. You really are. So that's a small change, both of them. And it's not cheating. It's fine. Um, (laughs) The second truth of the I am is everyone's got one. Everyone is interested in what, you think or feel about them to the IC domain. And you know it has an effect on the biological domain because it feels different when you feel respected or disrespected. And you're part of someone's home or social domain. So the second truth, you control no one, you influence everyone. 
you get to choose the kind of influence you want to be. Dr. Abby Donovan, what kind of influence do you want to be? I I want to be uh, an an influence of complete acceptance. I I think about that with my kids a lot. Um, and I think about it with my, my students a lot. I teach, I teach residents and I teach fellows. And I want to accept all of them wherever they are at and let them know that they are accepted by me. Um, and whatever it is they are struggling with, whatever it is they feel like they still need to learn and work on, I accept that. It's great. Folks, get in touch with Dr. Donovan. Get in touch with us if you need some help. We'll have some sites on the website. Thank you so much for being here, Abby. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me.